Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. All right, Jeremiah chapter 44 today. We're coming close to the end of this amazing book of the Bible, Jeremiah chapter 44. This is lesson number 21, and uh, excited about this amazing book of the Bible. As we approach Easter, the, uh, just getting so and so, so much more thankful for the, the Lord, His His blood that He shed on our behalf. My goodness, we're going to be talking about that in the future days here. But I want to tell you real quick here about... Um, about a, some, something you may know a little bit of, but, uh, but let me just describe something to you. There was a, when the Puritans came to America, they settled in New England in about 1630, in the 1630s, they had as a group a, a concern about the churches that they were building. And so here in America, and one thing they want to do is want to ensure that the, the pastors, the clergy, would continue to be literate, <laughs> uh, biblically literate and literate. Their answer to this issue, how are we going to keep our pastors going, was Harvard University. And in fact, it was a school that was established to educate people for the ministry. And their motto was, Harvard University's motto at that time was truth for Christ and the church. It was named after a pastor, John Harvard, and it would be for 70 years the school had a president uh, after that was always a pastor until after 70 years was the first time they ever had a president that wasn't a pastor. Now here we are four centuries later and Harvard's organization of chaplains, so this is the chaplain of, the, of Harvard University has just elected their new president, the president of chaplains, and he is an atheist. His name is Greg Epstein, and Epstein is the author of the book, Good Without God. It's, you know, a lot of Harvard students, uh, some were raised in the faith, some, some not sure how to label maybe their religion, but they talk about how Epstein has been such, a, such an influence in their life, these students say. And here's a quote from him. Epstein said, quote, There is a rising group of people who no longer identify with any religious tradition, but still experience a real need for conversation and support around what it means to be a good human and to live an ethical life. He himself has been Harvard's humanist chaplain, for since 2005, and he's been teaching students uh, about the progressive movement and uh, the people, it's all about people's relationships with each other rather than God, and obviously there is a trend in, across the United States where people are identifying, we've talked about this before, as spiritual but not a religiously affiliated with anybody, the, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Another group, another name for them these days is the, the people that have come out of evangelical, good Bible-believing churches. They're called ex-evangelicals. 
And at Harvard, you can imagine it's going to be a lot more than even just your typical person on the street. But here's what, one more thing Epstein said. He said, we don't look to a God for answers. We are each other's answers. In fact, I, as I was looking at this guy up, I just realized just a couple days ago on April Fool's Day, April 1st, he put out, he put out a tweet that, that said, uh, I'm... I'm retiring, and uh, uh, no, no, he no. He said, uh, he said, I'm, I'm I become a born again Christian, and I'm retiring. April Fools, basically. Uh, I mean, he has such a a nasty view of God and what it means to be a Christ follower. It's sad, isn't it? Yeah. It just grieves us. But let's be very clear: these folks, these ex-evangelicals these nuns, these people like Epstein here, they are part of a religion, as much as they want to deny it. Their God may not show up on the list of world religions, but they themselves are staunch adherents to their religion of secularism, wokeism, humanism, whatever ism you want to call it. I mean, they have their holy books, They have their legalistic set of rules and morals, things that you can and cannot do. They have their rituals. They have their community. And anybody that disagrees with them is a heretic. They can call it whatever they want to, but it is a religion. But the the Bible, though, would call it idolatry. Creating a God that suits you. I'm, you know, I don't, I don't like this God that's out there. I don't like the God everybody's talking about. So I'm going to create a God that looks a lot like me, that thinks a lot like me, that allows me to do what I want to do. The designer God. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If we go back in history, we see that the devil had also convinced the Jews that idolatry was better than worshiping God. It's the same thing in Jeremiah's day. It's been like this throughout history. The devil's always been trying to get folks to believe this. The God thing isn't working. It's not as fun to be in the church. It's not relevant. Let's just move on. And same back then as now, people are buying it hook, line, and sinker. And ironically, back then, same as today, they're very inclusive. A mixture of all the gods. Same thing was going on back then. For 400 years in the promised land, the God's people, they went back and forth with God. God was giving them all kinds of chances. I've led you into the promised land, given you so many options, but now one God after another, one God after another, you just keep turning to. But judgment finally came down hard. And this was, God had sent so many prophets, and he, we're gonna look at that in just a moment, but judgment had finally come. Jeremiah was the prophet that was going to usher it in. And he did. And that's what we've been talking about for quite a few weeks here. And after God allowed Jerusalem to be completely destroyed now, it's kind of went in stages. God hauled some people off to Babylon, then another group off to Babylon, then another group with the complete destruction. And now you just have a few, uh, some poor people left. The remnant, as the Bible calls it. And by the way, God always has a remnant. Always, always, always. Every time in history, there's always been Bible-believing Christians somewhere, someplace, gathering, having church, meeting with the Lord, and, uh, and spreading the gospel. It's always been this way. But they decided it was unsafe to stay. These, this remnant decided it's unsafe to stay here in Judah. So 
we need food, we need safety, so it's better off if we go to Egypt. We talked about that last week, and as you remember, God's word expressly told them, do not go. Jeremiah said, do not go to Egypt. Stay, and God will protect you. But they said, no, we're simply not going to do that. They blatantly disobeyed, and now they've been there for several years. And we're gonna see in the passage here, they're kind of spread out all over Egypt. So we don't know how many years now that they've been as, as this uh, chapter comes into play, but that's where we are in the story. And this is the last recorded message of Jeremiah, uh, chronologically. The rest of the book all happened at an earlier place. So this chapter really does, he's an old man now, and it really sums up Jeremiah's life ministry. This is a message to the remnant of the Jews now living in Egypt, where Jeremiah has been taken against his will. Will they remain strong in the faith here in Egypt? Jeremiah 44, verse one, here we go. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the Jews which dwell in the land of Egypt, which dwell at Migdal and Tehapanes and Noph and in the country of Pathros, saying, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, ye have seen all the evil that I have brought upon Jerusalem and upon all the cities of Judah, and behold, this day they are a desolation, and no man dwelleth therein. It's, it's a ghost town. God has allowed this Jerusalem to be completely destroyed because of their wickedness, which they have committed to provoke me to anger, in that they went to burn incense and to serve other gods, whom they knew not, neither they, ye, nor your fathers. Again, this so reminds me of these young folks at Harvard, let's say. Gods whom they know not. They're serving gods whom they know not. They don't know, people just don't know what they're doing. None of them really have any clue what they're doing. Some are raised to know better, but they're doing it just because cultures, they're just getting caught up in the wave of culture. And they don't even know in their heads what they're doing, no reason. Verse four, how be it, I sent unto you all my servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them saying, oh, do not this abominable thing that I hate. But they hearken not, nor incline their ear to turn from their wickedness, to burn no incense unto other gods. Wherefore my fury and mine anger was poured forth and was kindled in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. And they are wasted and desolate as at this day. So as we see here, Jeremiah begins with a review God has poured out, yes, God has poured out his anger, but the why is important. As it says in verse three, it's because of your wickedness and idolatry. It's not because God hates you. It's not because God hates you. It's because of your wickedness and idolatry. Something we remind our kids all, all the time. If we have to discipline you, especially when they were younger, I tried to say this as many times as we could, especially in times of non-conflict. We're teaching, why do mom and dad discipline? Why do we have to spank sometimes? Why do we do that? Not because we hate you, it's because we love you, actually. And this is what God is telling them. Your wickedness and your idolatry has forced me to do this. In fact, let me just explain this real quick. While Jeremiah was over here in Egypt preaching, there was another prophet over in Babylon talking to the Jews that had been hauled off to Babylon. His name was Ezekiel. And Ezekiel, is, there's something that he clarified in chapter 33 and verse 11. 
I have it here for you. Say unto them, this is Ezekiel now, as I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? God's not enjoying this. God never enjoys punishing the wicked. He takes no pleasure in it. He pleads with people, turn ye, turn ye. But as we read in Jeremiah, we see that the key thing that most grieved here now in Egypt, that, and it was angering God, was idolatry. But specifically here in Egypt, he brings up this burning incense. Burning of incense and serving other gods. For him, for God's heart, this was a, this was a wife who was, back, who was being a backstabber. She was backstabbing God. The people were running off to other gods. And the most popular gods in Canaan were Baal and, or Molech and Ashtaroth or Ashtara. Now real quick, Baal and Molech, we, as you, we've heard before, in Canaan there, they were the god of weather. Uh, the sun, the, the rain, all of that. Which in a farming and agrarian society was vital for wealth and prosperity. Ashtara was the goddess of fertility which involved in the, in the worship sexual practices. This, all, all these things, if you really boil it down, this were all, all these things involved wicked, idol-worshiping, evil things, burning your children, all of this. All about wealth and all about sex and sexual deeds. But it's a good thing we today in America are much more sophisticated, Right? We don't serve the idols of sex and wealth anymore. <laughs> it's good to know that, right? No, you know, it's, this, it's the same thing, different form. So God reviews all of this, but why? Because sadly, he's telling them that the people, you and your hearts are already going back and doing these same things now in Egypt. Look at verse seven. What a grief to God's heart. Therefore now, thus saith the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, wherefore? Or why commit ye this great evil against your souls? To cut off from you man and woman, child and suckling out of Judah, to leave you none to remain, in that ye provoke me unto wrath with the works of your hands, burning incense unto other gods in the land of Egypt. Whither ye be gone to dwell, that ye might cut yourselves off, and that ye might be a curse and a reproach among all the nations of the earth. Have ye forgotten the wickedness of your fathers and the wickedness of the kings of Judah? and the wickedness of their wives, and your own wickedness, and the wickedness of your wives, which they have committed in the land of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? They are not humbled, even unto this day. Neither have they feared, nor walked in my law, nor my statutes that I set before you and before your fathers. God here is just incredulous. Why? Why, after all of this, are you returning to the same things that got you into trouble in Jerusalem? You've been through all of this. You've seen everything that I've done. And now you're in Egypt, and you're going back to the same things with idols, idol worshiping, with a new God, but, but burning incense. Aren't you people connecting the dots here of what, I'm, what I have had to do? I know I keep saying it here, but... I'll say it again, sin makes you stupid. You just don't connect dots when you start sinning. 
But you look at, that, at the perspective that God wants them to have here. Notice what it says there in verse seven. You're sinning against your own souls. What an interesting perspective of sin. It's the perspective of look at what you're wasting when you do wicked things. Look at the, how you're wasting your life. People say, uh, I'm not hurting anyone when I sin, at least as long as I'm not hurting anyone. Yes, you are hurting someone. You're hurting yourself. You're hurting your soul. You have sinned against your own soul. You're worshiping another God and you're hurting your own soul. Now I know it's popular to see things and uh, the things we do is fluid and evolving and what was once wrong is now acceptable. But God's word is not fluid. It stays the same. I don't know if you've noticed that. (laughs) The things warned about in scripture will hurt us. And they'll hurt us deep down in our souls. Some have the view that God forbids it and that makes it sin. But actually, the correct view is that it is sin and therefore God forbids it. In other words, God doesn't just arbitrarily or randomly choose a few things that you like to do and say, you know what? No, you're not gonna do those things. You like doing that? You think that's fun? No, that's not how God works. No, sin will hurt people and therefore God gives us a rule to stay away from it. It's your choice but, and my choice, but as any loving parent would, we, we, we set guidelines and we know things that'll hurt. And we just have to trust the Lord on this. Charles Spurgeon says, oh, <laughs> oh, says someone, sin is a sweet thing. No, no, he says, it is an abominable thing. It is a delightful thing, says another. No, it is an abominable thing. Oh, but is it, it is an a fashionable thing. You can see it in the courts of kings and princes and the great men of the earth love it. Even though they do, it is an abominable thing. Listen to this. Though it should crawl up to the monarch's throne and spread its slime all over the crown jewels, it would still be an abominable thing. <laughs> he only, only Spurgeon could write like that. But notice God is specially singling out the burning of incense in Egypt. It appears that this was pers- just pervasive right now among God's people in Egypt. As we're gonna see, particularly the, the wives, the women. You know, real quick on burning incense. Burning incense has been a part of most religions uh, for many, for centuries. It's still heavily practiced today, especially by Hindus and Buddhists. So much so in these countries that are predominantly Buddhist and, and Hindu that, <laughs> this is interesting to me, I was studying this, uh, the environmentalists are, are having, are, are up in arms, they're, they're, they're freaking out. This, you are ruining uh, <laughs> the earth because of your, all of your incense is so much every day and it's uh, ruining our environment. In fact, they're, they're proposing, let's move to electric incense. <laughs> I guess the Hindus and Buddhists will have to determine if the gods will accept that, I don't know. But, but incense, in the ancient days was very interesting. Even God prescribed it in the temple, in a tabernacle. But it, for them, for, in the temple, it was a symbol of prayer. 
and it was a symbol of the work of Christ as a mediator on our behalf. And, but as we know in the Old Testament, God very, very specifically forbids strange fire or strange incense or the wrong type of uh, incense. Meaning, when you burn like this, it has to be done as God prescribed. So it was the purpose for the incense that was the issue. And what was the purpose here in Egypt? For these people in Egypt, even now in Hinduism and Buddhism and other religions, the incense is much more than a symbol. It's re actually related to the mythological beings that they're trying to appease. And they're trying to do this and they're burning this constantly for their own peace and their own prosperity. They have to do this. Here's what some of the historical writings and archeology span tell us about incense in Egypt. They used incense for resurrecting the spirits of de dead bodies. They would mummify those bodies, or right before they would mummify, they would put these bodies in there and they would burn all kinds of incense for the opening of the mouth ceremony. And they would get those bodies to open their mouth and it was a way of bringing to the life of the god Osiris into the dead body and then making this person a god and they can ascend to the heavens. Incense was also used in Egypt to invoke the gods and other just all kinds of random ceremonies. The smoke, actually, they believed that the smoke would actually become a form of one of the gods itself. And so you would actually just worship the smoke as it took on the form of a god. And by adding certain elements to the incense, they actually were producing a drug-like trance for the worshipers as well. So people were getting high. Strangely, this is also closely related to some of the very reasons, some of those reasons that, that candles and incense are burned in Orthodox churches and Catholic churches even today and in their traditions. Often the lighting of them before the icons and the statues. But let me clarify this. Using incense for this kind of purpose we're talking about here has no place in the worship of God. It's just not biblical. It takes the worshiper's heart and their mind into a, a, an opposite, completely opposite place of, than what God desires. So what's God going to do about this? His people are doing this. They're, they're doing all these incense in ancient Egypt there. They're just joining right along with all this stuff and, and burning this stuff and doing all these things. What's God going to do about it? Well, everybody is gathered to hear what Jeremiah is about to say and as he's been talking. Now verse 11. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will set my face against you for evil and to cut off all Judah. And I will take the remnant of Judah that have set their faces to go into the land of Egypt to sojourn there and they shall all be consumed and fall in the land of Egypt. They shall even be consumed by the sword and by the famine. They shall die from the least unto the greatest by the sword and by the famine and there shall be, they shall be an execration and an astonishment and a curse and a reproach. For I will punish them that dwell in the land of Egypt as I have punished Jerusalem by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. So that none of the remnant of Judah, which are gone into the land of Egypt to sojourn there, shall escape or remain. That they should return into the land of Judah to the which they have, des have a desire to return to dwell there. For none shall return, but such as shall escape. And he's, he's saying there is going to be a small amount. We'll see that in a moment. But in other words here, folks, 
This is literally your last chance to repent. Because God is now going to let this, he is not going to let this continue. All this incense burning, all this false worship, all this stuff. That you, the same stuff that you were doing back in Jerusalem. He cannot let it go. He's been doing this and doing this and doing this and giving you chance after chance. But he is, he's now about to go from a remnant to a remnant of a remnant. It's going to be so small and only a very few will escape. Now, let me just say, what we're about to look at now is the most awkward church service ever. Because at this point, everybody's gathered here and they're listening to Jeremiah. What you would hope would happen after he gives this message is that everybody would say, you know what? That was a great sermon, Jeremiah. <laughs> I am gonna come down to the front. I am gonna kneel down. I am gonna say, Lord, we are sorry for our sins. We're turning to you. We, we, we have done wrong. We have disobeyed. That's what should happen at this moment. But the people respond to the prophet here, though, in a very uh, non-traditional way. Verse 15, here we go. Then all the men which knew that their wives had burned incense unto other gods, and all the women that stood by, a great multitude, even all the people that dwelt in the land of Egypt, in Pathras, answered Jeremiah, saying, as for the word that thou hast spoken unto us in the name of the Lord, we will not hearken unto thee. But we will certainly do whatsoever thing goeth forth out of our own mouth, to burn incense unto the queen of heaven, and to pour out drink offerings unto her, as we have done. We and our fathers, our kings, and our princes, in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, for then we had plenty of victuals or food and were well and saw no evil. But since we left off to burn incense to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings unto her, we have wanted all things and have been consumed by the sword and by the famine. And when we burned incense to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings unto her, did we make cakes to worship her and pour out drink offerings unto her without our men? The people say, are saying here, <laughs> bottom line, in your dreams, old man, we ain't doing nothing that you're saying unless we want to do it. Wouldn't that be quite a church service? <laughs> At the end of the church service, everything goes quiet and the preacher finishes and the people all stand up and say, shove it, preacher. You, we ain't doing nothing that you're, you just said. Oh, but you have to hand it to them. You have to hand it to these people. They're being honest. <laughs> and sometimes I, I wish people would just say what's actually going on when they make their choices and just say, you know what? No, I know you're speaking the truth, but just no. <laughs> but let's look at a few things here real quick. A couple of things. Number one, the queen of heaven. I want to address this real quick. It's hard to know exactly which goddess that they are talking about here when they're talking about burning incense to the queen of heaven. It's mentioned here in Jeremiah, and that's about it in the Bible. There's so many gods and goddesses back then, but most of the, just as so we all know, most of the pantheon of gods and goddesses that are all in every polytheistic religion all over the world, almost all of them stem and from something that took place that predates the Tower of Babel. Nimrod, who was a real person, and then Samaramis, a wife, his wife, most likely, 
were well-known people back then, and somehow, from them it seems that there was all kind of these demonic legends that started, and now they're just all kinds of different ones out there. And there, there's mythological stories that just started permeating the entire world. And then those stories began to scatter all over the world because after the Tower of Babel, as the people spread all over, they took their stories with them. And now you see, started to see in Babylon, in Canaan, in Egypt, in Greece, then in Rome, all of these places, they have these similar mythological stories with slight variations. The Queen of Heaven is most commonly thought to be the same as Astarte, uh, Ashtara, Isis, Artemis. These are all the different names of this goddess depending on where you're at in the world. Isis is the Egyptian version of this goddess. And in Egypt, and in all over these places, they've found a plethora of, when they dig, they find these little idols of goddesses all the time. In Egypt, they found statues of a nude woman with her foot on a lion. This could have been the queen of heaven that, that, uh, that the Jews were burning incense to. Multiple other statues, one in particular that seems to stand out is a, is a statue of a goddess that's nursing her son, who is a god himself in their, in, in their, in their uh, mythological stories. So she would be considered the mother of God, or perhaps also the queen of heaven. And by the way, just in passing here, again, I gotta make reference to this, it is unthinkable why Catholics would use the term mother of God or queen of heaven for Mary, which they do. It's, 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 it's unthinkable. But also notice here in Egypt, women seem to be the main drivers of the incense worship. Earlier in Jeremiah, in chapter seven, it talked about the kids, the moms getting the kids involved. The kids are gathering sticks and they're burning fires and they're baking cakes to the queen of heaven. And this had become a family affair. Everybody's getting involved and doing these little rituals to, to, to appease and to please the queen of heaven. And, and they make it clear here in verse 19 of this chapter that their husbands knew about it. They say, we didn't do this. It's not like our husbands didn't know about it. It's interesting to say, obviously, just, they're just saying, Jeremiah, don't just look at us. Our hus- husbands knew the whole time. But my question here, real quick, on, just, on this whole, as we think through that, these families all getting involved in this. My, my question here is, what is wrong with you men? What is wrong with you men, you husbands? Where is your spiritual backbone? Where is your commitment to God and the spiritual training of your children here? And women, what are you communicating to your children when, we're, when you're burning this incense? And how, what are you talking about? What are you telling them? Why are we doing this? All this stuff we're discussing. And why don't you get involved, kids? Just, a, just I mean, what, a, what an important reminder it is for us today that what we do in the home is vitally important for the spiritual formation of our children. These, these folks were having family worship for the queen of heaven, but many of us can't do it for the true king of kings. We can't just sit down as a family and, and, and worship the Lord together a little bit. What's wrong with us? Where are our priorities here as Christians sometimes in the 21st century? We get our kids involved in everything under the sun, but we miss church and we miss f- uh, family Bible time. Listen, I don't want, I don't want you to feel guilty, okay? <laughs> I just hope we see the, the message that we're sending to our young ones when we make the choices that we make as parents.
They're so huge. And then lastly, notice this. Verses 17 and 18, these people, their circumstantial reasoning. Meaning, their statement is very revealing about how we humans make circumstances instead of God's word the basis for our beliefs. The people, look how they looked, they framed it. This is how they said, Jeremiah, while we worshiped the queen of heaven, things went great for us. But anytime we stopped worshiping the queen of heaven, things got bad. What? Where in the world did you get this? It almost, you know, maybe they're referring to a long time ago when King Josiah was there and there was a great reform and, and uh, they, people were putting away the gods and maybe th- things weren't going like they maybe thought they should. Or maybe more likely it seems to me that they're talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And then for a while there, after the destruction, all their stuff is ruined, their houses are down, all their altars that they had built for the queen of heaven, and everything, everything was down, and, and now they're lacking food, they're lacking safety, and so they, they're looking at it this way, and they look at this and say, wait a second, we're not worshiping, and now look how bad things are. We're not performing our vows. We had made vows to the queen of heaven that we would do this, and because we're not keeping our vows, the queen of heaven is angry, and she's pouring out all this on us. So circumstantially, they're looking at the situation, oh, this is why, this is why things are bad. In their vast omnipotence, they knew everything, here's what they concluded. Idol worshiping works, and God worshiping doesn't. This is so common. You may not hear people say it straight out like that, but they have decided this God thing doesn't work. I've been doing this, this God thing doesn't work. I'm gonna do my own thing. People leave the church and become ex-evangelicals and they say, oh, now I'm free from the rigid rules of the Bible. Funny how they always seem to run to what's culturally popular at the moment, that's interesting. But, but, but is this true? Is everything really gonna turn out fine if you abandon God and go live for yourself? I, like, I love what Philip Ryken said here. Listen to this. Every sin turns out to be suicidal. This is the great danger of doing what works instead of doing what is right. If you live for yourself, you will destroy yourself. It can feel good to be angry, but anger leads to bitterness. Greed works if you want to make money, but it's the enemy of contentment. Sexual sin destroys sexual intimacy and so on. Sin destroys the soul. It destroys relationships with other people and fellowship with God. In the end, sin recoils to devour the sinner. You know, that's the point here. The sin of idolatry will never work in the end. We as humans tend to look at the sliver of a moment in front of us in this circumstance and we say, God's not answering my prayer. God's not doing what I want him to do. God, I've been asking, I've been begging, and I don't know, this is just, God's, I, I was better off before. I, I mean, it was just as good back then. We tend to look at the sliver of a moment, and in our vast omnipotence, we make a conclusive decision about reality. But God's perspective is much different. So you Jews in Egypt, you can keep thinking, it's better to worship the queen of heaven but the day of regret will come. The day of regret will come. 
And I don't know how to change your mind, in other words, but I'm just gonna tell you, your day's coming. And that brings Jeremiah, that brings us to Jeremiah's response after this very strange church service here. I just so wish, you know, when I read this and see that, realize that these are the last words that we know of that are recorded that Jeremiah gives to the people. I wish he could have ended on a happy note, Jeremiah. All his whole life, he's been the deliverer of bad news. No wonder he's called the weeping prophet. Verse 20, then Jeremiah said unto all the people, to the men and to the women and to all the people which had given him that answer, saying, the incense that ye burned in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, ye and your fathers, your kings and your princes and the people of the land, did not the Lord remember them and came it not into his mind so that the Lord could no longer bear because of, your, of the evil of your doings and because of the abominations which ye have committed? Therefore is your land a desolation and an astonishment and a curse without an inhabitant as at this day. Because ye have burned incense and because ye have sinned against the Lord and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord nor walked in his law nor in his statutes nor in his testimonies therefore this evil has happened unto you as at this day. Moreover Jeremiah said unto all the people and to all the women hear the word of the Lord all Judah that are in the land of Egypt. Thus saith the Lord of hosts the God of Israel saying Ye and your wives have both spoken with your mouths and fulfilled with your hands, saying, We will surely perform our vows that we have vowed to burn incense to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings unto her. Ye will surely accomplish your vows and surely perform your vows. Therefore, hear ye the word of the Lord, all Judah that dwell in the land of Egypt. Behold, I have sworn by my great name, saith the Lord, that my name shall no more be named in the mouth of any man of Judah in all the land of Egypt, saying, The Lord God liveth. Behold, I will watch over them for evil and not for good. And all the men of Judah that are in the land of Egypt shall be consumed by the sword and by the famine, and there shall be an end of them. Yet a small number that escape the sword shall return out of the land of Egypt into the land of Judah. And all the remnant of Judah that are gone into the land of Egypt to sojourn there shall know whose words shall stand, mine or theirs. God's going to make sure that there's not one Jew left in Egypt. Everyone, every single one is gonna be touched by this judgment that he's gonna pass. Most will die by the sword or famine, but a small number will return back to Judah, a remnant of a remnant. And these people will be able to see with their own eyes whose word shall stand, God's or theirs, mine or theirs. And in that day, you will see what a powerful truth. Kind of feels like God is done talking here. I've tried, I've tried, I've tried. It's time for you just to see for yourself. And at the end of the day, you really can put people in one of these two categories, can't you? Those who believe God's word will stand in the last day and those who believe that their word will stand in the last day. And there really is nothing other than that. To this Harvard chaplain of humanism, one day you will know whose word shall stand, God's or yours. To all these ex-evangelicals who are leaving the church, one day we'll see whose word will stand, God's or yours. To all who stop believing in creation, hell, sin, one day we'll see whose word shall stand, God's or yours. To all those who cave to the culture because it works, one day we'll see whose word shall stand, God's or yours. God will fulfill every jot and every tittle 
Jesus said. He will fulfill every single one. Verse 29, and this shall be a sign unto you, saith the Lord, that I will punish you in this place, that you may know that my words shall surely stand against you for evil. In other words, you'll start seeing that I'm telling the truth as soon as those judgments start coming to pass. And you'll know, here comes the wave. Verse 30, thus saith the Lord, behold, I will give Pharaoh Hophra, king of Egypt, into the hand of his enemies, and into the hand of them that seek his life, as I gave Zedekiah, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, his enemy, that sought his life. Basically saying the person, uh, you Jews in Egypt, the person you're trusting in right now, the king of Egypt, for safety, will soon be in the same position as the king who promised you safety in, in Judah. <laughs> for us, real quick, as we think about 2022, I gotta just tell you as I think about this, if the last couple years of pestilence and war and financial instability has taught us anything, it's that we should not put our faith in the strength of any person or any nation. That would be the stupidest thing we could possibly do. They're all about, people are all about looking at what works, what works, but God's word is all about what's true. And that's what we follow. And then we will see whose word shall stand, mine or theirs. Lord, we know. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www. .thehomechurch.net From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.